Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Fistle Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com. This is an iHeart Original. Imagine a smoke-filled room. Like, uh, just any smoke-filled room? No, no, the smoke-filled room. Ah, the smoke-filled room. That mythical place where nefarious plans are laid and conspiracies are hatched. It's 1933, and the smoke-filled room is occupied by disgruntled masters of the universe. We're talking really rich, really powerful, really white guys. Historical dudes. Yeah, and they all really dislike the president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. They joke about getting rid of him all the time. I can almost picture them now. Yes, yes, I hate that guy. A traitor to his class. Now, at some point, the conversation about getting rid of FDR gets real. He must go. I concur. We must plan. To the smoke-filled room. Lucius, we're already here. Ah, so we are. Looks different. Did someone paint? From iHeart Originals and School of Humans, this is Let's Start a Coup. I'm your host, Ben Bolin. And I'm your other host, Alex French. To bring you the story, we've done all the research, read the books, interviewed historians. But still, there are some big gaps in the historical record. And we'll never know exactly what happened. So in those gaps, we've had some fun. And you know what else makes it fun? The opium. Episode 1, A Basket Full of Fascists. proper coup requires three ingredients. The first thing you need is a leader. But not just any kind of leader. You need a dictator. One who is actually a puppet so that we can call the shots. But nonetheless, a strong man who commands respect. The man on the white horse, if you will. I like where you're going with that. White is good. <laughs> not so loud. The second ingredient. You need muscle. And by muscle... We mean enough to march on the palace and overwhelm the guards and the Capitol Police and then any remaining pitchfork-wielding loyalists. I know some fabulous ruffians from a terrible neighborhood. No, no, think classier. 
Columns of jackbooted thugs. Oh, fabulous. Uh, a black uniform shirts with those wildly exciting armbands. Oh, the mind reels with the sartorial options. And you need a loyal commander to lead that pack of lunatics. Yes, that's right, Alex. That person might be the most important piece of the puzzle. You'd better make sure your top general is on your side. That their loyalty is in the right place. This is a huge deal. Wishy-washy generals. No good. Noted. Say, you know, this reminds me of a story. An episode from American history that nobody really knows or talks about too much these days. It's a story about a plot to overthrow a sitting American president and the general who claimed that he was recruited to lead the coup. Oh, it's a total banger. It's got everything. Deceit, betrayal, dark comedy. I guess it is kind of dark in here. Well, then turn on a lamp, dummy. Oh, there you are. Our story takes place during a time in American history when fascism still had that new car smell. Smack in the middle of what's called the interwar period. Those years between the First and Second World Wars, a time of social strife and political upheaval, toxicity courses through our political discourse. It felt, back then, a little bit like it does today. And here to tell us more about it is none other than a man so loathsome, so despicable, that the musical Annie has an entire song about what a tool he is. That's a true story. I don't know why everyone's calling it a Great Depression. I can't remember when I last had such a swell time. It's President Herbert Hoover, who, well, I'm just gonna let him sink his own ship. America, cool it. There's only 25% unemployment. That means 75% of you are lucky enough to have jobs you hate. And so what if 90% of West Virginia and Kentucky residents suffer from malnutrition? I say, who'd want to live there anyway? (sighs) Mr. Hoover. Point is, nobody is actually starving. The hobos are better fed than they have ever been. My producer's giving me a look. Was that bad? Should I not have said that? Yeah, empathy was never your strong suit, Mr. Hoover. I know, but look at the actual suit I'm wearing. It's fierce, right? While homeowners are losing their houses at a rate of a thousand a day, you refuse to freeze foreclosures. And I bet I'd have gotten away with it if it hadn't been for that meddling electorate. Sorry, Herbs, that's just the way it goes. In November 1932, Franklin Delano Roosevelt wins the presidential election in a landslide. Well, it's his funeral. This job sucks. After his inauguration, Roosevelt calls... Hang on, hang on. Are you saying it right or am I? Is it Roosevelt or is it Roosevelt? I think they're both actually correct. I mean, I pronounce it Dequad Delano face. (sighs) Used to be president, man. Alex, go ahead. So after his inauguration, Roosevelt calls an emergency session of Congress during which the legislative branch rubber stamps New Deal legislation aimed at jumpstarting the economy. I shall ask the Congress for the one remaining instrument to meet the crisis. It's kind of hard to understand what Roosevelt is saying, but he's essentially asking for broad executive power to fight the Depression. He says, quote, As great as the power that would be given to me if we were, in fact, invaded by a foreign foe. Well, if that's what you want to do, go for it, I guess. Throughout this entire period, the idea that democracy has failed is everywhere. And there are some very powerful voices advocating for a dictatorship in the United States. Some of these people owned newspapers and motion picture companies. They held government office, owned banks and huge corporations. 
Ideas about the brokenness of democracy were on the front pages of the paper and in the movies. These powerful people believed there had to be a better way, a new path that protected the status quo, while at the same time giving them even more power. That way was, well, fascism. Case in point, in 1933, MGM released a remarkable photodrama that's a Depression-era speak for movie. It's called Gabriel Over the White House. This film was financed by media magnate William Randolph Hearst, also known as the inspiration for the classic film Citizen Kane, but like, in a bad way. Anyway, Hearst Media Holdings made him one of the most powerful men in the world, and he made a movie that has been mostly forgotten. But it reveals the American elite's fascistic fantasy of a strong man who could just get stuff done. Democracy be damned. In Gabriel, Walter Houston plays Judd Hammond, an American politician who has just been inaugurated as President of the United States. The film is set in 1930s America. The country is in peril. Poverty, hunger, distrust of institutions. Here's audio of a disgruntled reporter describing the climate at a press conference early in the film. My paper's indictment against the government is a staggering one. Millions of dollars are poured into new battleships. Farmers burn corn and wheat. Food is thrown away into the sea while men and women are begging for bread. What does the new administration say to this? Now, from the get-go, it's abundantly obvious that Hammond is not cut out for the job he's just won. He's part of this corrupt political machine that has led the American people into a horrific depression. Early in the film, Hammond takes a presidential limo on a high-speed joyride for some reason, and he gets into a catastrophic crash. Cut to the presidential ICU where Hammond is comatose, the prognosis is grim. Doctor, what is your opinion? I'm afraid he's beyond any human help. But then we see a tight shot of the hospital room's window, curtain fluttering in the breeze, and the room is flooded with light. It's a sign that the Archangel Gabriel has entered the chamber to take possession of the president's body. When President Hammond comes to, he is a changed man. He sits silently in his hospital bed reading and thinking. He's no longer so slick. His hair is all mussed up. It's a little bit like Bernie Sanders, honestly. Do not bring me into this. My bad, Bernie. It's a nice impression, though. You think? The point is, suddenly the fictional President Hammond is a man of principle, careful thought, and deliberate action. He makes promises that sound a lot like some of FDR's New Deal initiatives. I propose, therefore, to create an army to be known as the Army of Constructions. You'll be enlisted, subject to military discipline. Later that night, at his State of the Union address, President Hammond fires his entire cabinet. Then he forces Congress to adjourn. He declares... And if what I plan to do in the name of the people makes me a dictator, then it is a dictatorship based on Jefferson's definition of democracy. A government for the greatest good of the greatest number. He broadcast his plans. He's going to stop foreclosures. He's going to protect people's money in banks. I propose immediately to give direct aid to the 55 million American people who depend entirely upon agriculture, without whose prosperity there can be no real prosperity in the United States. And all of these things that President Hammond decrees, he makes them happen. 
to hell with checks and balances. He's here to cut past the red tape. He's getting stuff done. He's become an FDR-flavored dictator. But a dictator who does some good things is still a dictator. He's consolidated power. But in the movie, you don't see the nasty business that goes along with taking complete control of a nation. It's Hollywood selling softcore fascism. Boom. Love it. But what does that mean exactly? Fascism. I mean, more importantly, what did fascism mean during the interwar period? It's a cottage industry to answer this question. Whole books have been written and vibrantly disagreed with by other scholars of fascism just to get to the question of a definition. That's Richard Stiegman Gall. He's a writer and associate history professor at Kent State. He's written a bunch, and spectacularly, on this topic. Stiegman Gall defines fascism as... A hyper-nationalist, violent movement committed to the restoration of national greatness and the belief that extra-legal means are required to restore that national greatness. Let's break that down a bit. Stiegman Gall says fascists are hyper-nationalists. They believe their nation is superior and they must stop at nothing to advance and protect their version of it. They welcome violence. They're also, importantly, anti-communist. And the last thing. Fascism insists that the legal state has been seized by people who don't belong there. In fact, Stiegman Gall says, there's a good argument to be made that fascism is an American creation that it first took shape right after the Civil War when a bunch of Confederate soldiers established a little something called the Ku Klux Klan. The KKK believed that the triumph of the Union over the Confederacy and the triumph of electoral equality for newly freed African Americans is a destruction of the, the real America, right? And so they're willing to go to extra-legal lengths, murder, terror, to regain their own supremacy. In other words, the government isn't serving my interests, so I'm going to force it to by any means necessary. You know, drain the swamp. The interwar period was a time when thousands of Americans, dozens of extremist groups, media personalities, and politicians, they all believed that democracy had failed. They felt like things had gotten so bad that the time had come to try something different. They wanted a dictator. After the break, we join a roving mob of disgruntled soldiers as they occupy the nation's capital. And we meet the Generalissimo, a hard-eyed, awesome-named jarhead who's traveled the world and has exactly no tolerance for tomfoolery. A legend in his time, a bigot's bigot, Major, General, Smedley, Darlington, Butler. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash ConcertWeek to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and two-door cinema club. Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. 
When Dr. Sabah and I decided to do a skincare line together, he said to me, we are going to give women meaningful beauty. And I said, that's exactly right. We want to give women meaningful beauty, which means each and every product is meaningful. It has a, a reason to exist. It's efficacious. You're going to get results. And then you just go out and live your life. Meaningful beauty. Confidence is beautiful. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. Okay, so I know we said we'd introduce you to Smedley, but not quite yet. First, we have to set the stage. We'll go back one year to 1932 before FDR gets elected. A lot of folks in the U.S. are flirting with fascism. One group in particular, veterans of the First World War. They're broke, they're angry, and they hold Uncle Sam responsible. 300 veterans of the Great War from Portland, Oregon, mobilized to march on Washington and lobby for immediate payment of their war bonuses. The money the U.S. government promised for their service during World War I. Those greedy vets, it's always more, more, more with them. Oh, our smoke-filled room-dwelling plutocrats are back. Do you guys have any advice for the veterans? Yeah, 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 here's one. Be born rich. Good advice. These veterans piled onto eastbound freight trains, vacant cattle cars still stinking of manure, packing everything they needed in those little, uh, broomstick-hung hobo suitcase. You, you know what I'm talking about? They're, they're called bindles, in case, you know, you ever need to impress a hobo. Oh, I promise you, I won't. Yes, along with shanty and taxes, that's a word we do not need to know. High five! Ow, my wrist! They call themselves the Bonus Expeditionary Force, the BEF, a callback to the American Expeditionary Force that landed in France. As word of the BEF spreads, veterans from every corner of the country pack up their families and head for the capital. 200 from San Francisco. 300 from Cleveland. 500 from Chicago. And exactly none from my compound in East Egg, because me and the Buchanans have got better things to do. Look, honestly, these veterans got a raw deal. They're converging on the nation's capital because their military service paid them virtually nothing, leaving them badly in the hole when they got home. During this time of poverty and misery, these veterans are amongst the most vulnerable people in the entire country. After the war, the government promised money in the form of bonus certificates that weren't payable until 1945. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but ask yourself, how much value would you place on your paycheck if you couldn't redeem it until 2036? The vets called these certificates the tombstone bonus because most everybody would be dead before they could collect them. The first wave of BEF soldiers arrives in D.C. in late May. Hundreds take shelter in the ruins of demolished buildings along Pennsylvania and Constitution Avenue, not too far from the White House. Thousands of others built a camp on the Anacostia Flats. Mobile food carts provided by the War College fed the men stew and coffee. They also got their hands on lumber, nails, and tin. Empty bed sacks and tons of hay for filling. A vast encampment of tents and shanties takes shape, stretching across the skyline. And the Salvation Army sets up a library near the entrance of the camp. Sounds dusty. Newspapermen remark that the occupying crowd is governed by the military's code of discipline, 
Walter Waters, the leader of the BEF, gave his men three rules. No panhandling, no liquor, and no radical talk. Waters also led the khaki shirts, which was often described as a closely knit semi-military organization. The khaki shirts called themselves 100% American, and they would pounce on any suspected commies. They would haul the accused before a kangaroo court and sentence them to belt lashings and expulsion from the camps. So what you're saying, Ben, is that if Walter Waters wasn't an actual fascist, he was fascist adjacent. Yeah. You know, Alex, I may be relatively new at this coup planning business, but I sniff some real potential in this massive gathering of disenchanted veterans. Well, that might be the stew. These vets had really gone through it. They were deeply disillusioned by the grinding misery of trench warfare in Europe. And then they come home to a country sinking into crisis. And they're being disrespected by political leaders who refuse to pay their war bonuses. It was overwhelming and traumatic. And that lasted for decades. Even in the 30s, it's still the long tail of World War I. And not just in the United States, but in Europe. Take Italy, for example. Italian veterans of the war came home with the same disillusionment. But instead of being disrespected, Italian vets were lifted up by their political leaders. Historian Katie Hole told us about it. What Americans saw in Italy in the rise of fascism was kind of against all odds. The fascists having a very different response to the wartime experience, wearing their veteran status, those who were veterans, on their sleeves, retaining the values of patriotism and apparently retaining values of service. That whole experience in Italy that American observers saw seemed like a sort of perfect counter to the disillusionment that Americans had felt amongst themselves after the First World War. In just a few years, the fascisti, as they were known, formed an ascendant political movement, the National Fascist Party. Benito Mussolini, the organization's head honcho, called for a strong man to revive Italy. All over the country, armed vigilante squads known as Black Shirts organized to keep the streets clear of socialists, labor radicals, and anarchists. Mussolini used the black shirts to knock off potential rivals, and they became known for extreme violence. Uh, the fascisti sound fascitti. Well, language, Alex. We're a family show. In October 1922, flanked by some 30,000 black shirts, Mussolini marched on Rome, all but seizing control of the government, at least according to the propaganda. And to Americans, for 15 years or so, fascism doesn't seem like such a bad thing. The new National Fascist Party was really getting stuff done. And so what you start to see, that many people look to fascist Italy and say, look what Mussolini's doing in fascist Italy. He's creating jobs, he's doing public works, He's producing a welfare state that enables greater maternal aid, care for infants, care for working mothers, and he's appearing to create a very functional social safety net and a welfare state. Americans, on the other hand, still felt hoodwinked into joining the war. Then the stock market crashed and the Great Depression set in, and President Hoover did basically nothing to help Americans weather the storm. Against that backdrop, you have many Americans who almost provocatively say, 
what we need right now is a dictator. And it's really their way of saying that democracy isn't serving us. Democracy hasn't been doing anything. People haven't been really going to the polls or haven't been going to the polls for the right reason for the best part of the decade. And so we may as well have a dictator. In the United States, Il Duce's Squadristi, the black shirts, and later Hitler's brown shirts all became a model for American proto-fascist organizations. The white shirt crusaders, the khaki shirts, the gray shirts, the silver legion. At this point, they're going to run out of colors, Ben. Yeah, the defenders of the Christian faith, the American Nationalist Confederation, the National Gentile League. They popped up everywhere. They were nativist, populist. Some held aspirations greater than garden-variety terror and violence, like holding public office and transforming their worldviews into actual legislation. They wanted to force Jewish people into ghettos. They wanted to limit citizenship and find ways to exclude large numbers of what they called undesirables from voting. For example, the Black Legion, a night-riding terror organization, emerged from the Midwest, spinning out of a KKK security force. They attracted members who didn't believe the Klan's methods were extreme enough. What? Yeah, I know, right? And these weren't just civilians. This group was rumored to include veterans, police chiefs, a city councilman, even officials from the Department of Justice. In short... The people who were supposed to keep the peace conspired to sow chaos. The Black Legion murdered and kidnapped with impunity. They even had a dedicated arson squad. And then there was the American Legion. By American Legion, Alex, do you mean the old guys with the wood-paneled clubhouses who sometimes sponsor Little League Yeah, yeah, very different organization back then. Huh. No discussion of American fascism in the interwar period is complete without a discussion of the American Legion. Most of the historians we spoke with about fascism pointed to the American Legion as being a close cousin of Italy's black shirts. Here's historian Richard Stiegmengall again. The idea is, you know, so many men have sacrificed for the nation. We should found an organization that is designed to represent their interests. And the American Legion's various flirtations with fascism already are a huge instance in which soldiers, or perhaps more accurately, ex-soldiers, find themselves drawn to fascism. I mean, you've got very explicit and open proclamations by the American Legion itself that, quote-unquote, we are the American squadristi, named, of course, after Mussolini's black-shirted vigilantes. The American Legion were such fans of Mussolini that they invited him to speak at their convention in 1923. He declined. Now, these American Legion guys weren't all talk, either. The Legion practiced an aggressive anti-communist vigilantism. In 1919, in Centralia, Washington, there was this notorious street battle between the American Legion and members of a far-left labor activism group called the Industrial Workers of the World, also known as the Wobblies. A major fracas broke out at an Armistice Day parade. It culminated in the death of several Legionnaires and the kidnapping of a Wobbly named Wesley Everest from the local jail. They lynched him and hanged his body from a bridge. This was gruesome, gruesome stuff. So remember that mass of disenchanted vets converging on the nation's capital in mid-June 1932? There's no doubt that some portion of the crowd carries a membership for the American Legion, or the Black Legion, or the Silver Legion. 
Pick your proto-fascist mob. It's starting to make the hairs on the back of my neck stand up. Picture it. A blazing hot day, humid with the scorching sun. The bonus army is gathered in Washington, D.C. All of these guys packed together in close quarters on that blistering concrete. There's palpable tension in the air. They're waiting for news from Capitol Hill because Congress has finally begun voting on the war bonus bill. They've been waiting years to be paid for their service. And if Congress passes the bill, tens of thousands of vets could finally be on a path out of hunger and poverty. The New York Times reports a really visible sag in the mood. The veterans know defeat is all but certain. And if by some miracle, the Senate decides it's a good idea to write war veterans a $2.4 billion check, President Hoover is absolutely going to veto the bill. Discussion on the floor of the Senate chamber lasts all day. Inside, the senators can hear the crowd surrounding the building. At 9.30 p.m., Walter Waters, the leader of the gathered veterans, comes onto the steps of the Capitol and announces that the bill has been defeated, 62 to 18. These are hopeless men with hopeless families. They've traveled hundreds of miles to lobby for a life-changing sum of cash that they believe they rightly deserve. And their futures are being decided by a bunch of rich senators. So what do you think happens next? Oh, I know. These homeless fellows are going to burn down the Capitol. Wait, no. It looks like they're going to sing. Ugh. America the Beautiful. Ooh. You know, as singers, they sure do make wonderful hobos. A month passes. 16,000-plus veterans remain in D.C. By mid-July, the bonus marchers' desperation grows acute. On the last day Congress is in session, thousands of angry veterans return to the Hill, surrounding the Capitol, forcing terrified legislators to escape through underground tunnels. So is this the part where they storm the Capitol? Not quite. Instead, President Hoover, true to his name, is going to evict the BEF from Washington, D.C. Be gone, demons. By now you're wondering, why has Ben Bolin dragged me into this fetid Hooverville? I thought this was supposed to be a podcast about a plot hatched by a cabal of mega-wealthy industrialists to overthrow an American president. Right. Okay. Perfect timing, Alex. Here it comes. The reason we're here. He's about to trudge through the ankle-deep muck of Anacostia Flats and straight into our story. A two-time Medal of Honor recipient and the holder of the Marine Corps' highest honor, the Brevet Medal, the most decorated Marine in the history of the service at the time. He is a legit celeb. Major General Smedley Darlington Butler. And yes, that is his full and very fancy name. He climbs onto a stage in front of a growing crowd of bonus army vets. Hi. He's a wiry five foot eight with a ramrod posture and his nickname is Old Gimlet Eye. Because in those days, Gimlet Eye was an expression to signify a piercing stare. He sports a massive tattoo of the Marine Corps globe and anchor on his chest. 
It goes from my throat to my gut, you filthy animal. What Smedley Butler is truly famous for, however, is the care he takes of other Marines. Here, I clipped out the latest Dick Tracy for you. It's a real nail-biter. Enjoy. But he was passed up for the role of Marine Corps Commandant, the top job. Shortly after, he retired from the Corps. Now, at 50 years old, Smedley Butler finds himself in the midst of an existential reckoning. Who am I when I'm not doing nice things for vets like clipping comic strips? He stays out on the road for months at a time, giving speeches to veteran groups for 250 bucks a pop. He gives a big cut of every paycheck to the Veterans Unemployment Fund. You see, to him, the men in this bonus army crowd, these are his men, and they feel the same way about him. There's a loyalty here, one that cannot be bought. There are four and a half million veterans in the United States. Smedley thinks they could be a powerful voting block if only they banded together. When Smedley Butler is introduced, the crowd greets him with a, quote, enthusiastic roar of acclaim that echoes through Washington like thunder. Take it from me, this is the greatest demonstration uh, um, ex- um, um, ex- <clears throat> excuse me, yep. uh, actor who's playing Smedley Butler. What do you want? We have an actual recording of Smedley's voice to play here. Oh, all right, then I'm going to go take five. Okay, so here's the clip. Take it from me. This is the greatest demonstration of Americanism we've ever had. Pure Americanism. Willing to take this beating as you've taken it. Stand right steady. You keep every law. And why in the hell shouldn't you? Who in the hell has done all the bleeding for this country and for this law and and this constitution anyhow for two fellas? It's over. The BEF soldiers won't be getting their money. But the Bonus Army hangs in D.C. for another week and a half. On the morning of July 28th, the cops begin to yank men from the ruined buildings on Pennsylvania Avenue. The greatest concentration of fighting troops in Washington since 1865 to rout the bonus army from government property which they've been occupying without permission. Walter Waters, their leader, urges the men to cooperate and go peacefully, but some veterans start throwing rocks at the police. Soon, two veterans are shot dead. Near the White House, General Douglas MacArthur shows up in an olive green field coat and tan knickers and wears his hat jauntily askew. That's right, that General MacArthur one of the country's most recognized military leaders. Today, though, he's here to crack some American skulls. He's got 600 armed soldiers and six tanks. At MacArthur's say-so, the cavalry moves on the ruined buildings along Pennsylvania Avenue, unleashing a barrage of tear gas on BEF-occupied buildings. And so they're being forced out of their shack by smoke bombs and tear gas hurled by the troops who have been called out by the President of the United States. The infantry follows with rifle-mounted bayonets. BEF soldiers put up a fight, but not much of one. In the evening, having won the first battle, MacArthur directs his troops to torch every tent in the BEF camp. It's a spectacle unparalleled in the history of the country. A day of bloodshed and riot, reminiscent of actual conditions in France in 17. President Hoover watches all of this. He sees the fires burn from a White House window, and then he goes to bed. The light from those tents is so bright, you guys. But not to worry, I got my eye mask. 
Made of kittens, night. The violence leaves at least two veterans dead, and at least two more veterans severely injured with gunshot wounds. Dozens more are hospitalized with concussions, burns, and gashes. People are wounded by bricks and hatchets. The wife of a veteran from Dallas is run over by a cavalry horse. A 14-year-old boy is treated for serious saber wounds. He's not the only one. Gradually, the bonus army realizes that they'd better be good, and a general retreat begins. Thousands of vets hobble away from the nation's capital to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, to regroup. At Johnstown, the 9,000 bonus seekers immediately threw up tents and shacks for themselves and families. Beaten down, but unwilling to accept defeat, the BEF once again asked Major General Smedley Butler to take command, at least according to the newspapers. While the scenes of MacArthur's soldiers gassing and burning great war veterans sicken Smedley, he just tells the paper the BEF men should return to their homes. Major General Smedley Butler is, however, far less reticent about attacking President Herbert Hoover. God, Smedley Butler, leave me alone. I don't come to your encampment and tell your veterans what to do. So you can imagine Smedley's delight when the press flays Hoover for his treatment of the vets. Even the Washington Daily News, sort of the Newsmax of its day, writes... What a pitiful spectacle. If the army must be called out to make war on unarmed citizens, this is no longer America. Smedley Butler goes on the road, stumps for FDR during the 32 presidential campaign, declares himself a... Hoover for ex-president Republican, and you can quote me on that. Look, Smedley is a demagogue. There's no real other way to put it. He has a hard-line populist message speaking directly to veterans. From time to time, he does lectures on the same bill as legendary rabble-rouser Huey Long. All in all, Smedley gives about 40 anti-Hoover speeches in the lead-up to the 1932 election. Those BEF boys were gassed in the battlefields of France in 1918 and again in the streets of Washington in 32. And when Americans went to the polls in November of 1932, Roosevelt's election was more of a tsunami than a landslide. Smedley Butler spent the election at his home in Newton Square, Pennsylvania. No FDR victory party for old Smedley, though. He's not the gloating type. NBD, just saving the country like I do. Yet, despite all the miles Smedley logged for Roosevelt, after the election, the president-elect doesn't want anything to do with him. It feels a little bit like there are no more battles to fight for Smedley. He's out to pasture. He writes a book about his Marine Corps adventures called Old Gimlet Eye. He reads the newspaper in his easy chair. He delivers speeches to any group that will have him. The Women's Club of East Orange, New Jersey. How you doing, ladies? The Bristol Fathers Association. Beautiful day to be a father, am I right? The New England Iron and Hardware Association. Hey! Nice hammers, everybody. Roosevelt wins the election in November, but he is not inaugurated until March. The intervening months are the hardest of the Depression, and Hoover is still doing... nothing. Oh my god, I am like so sick of this job. People were desperate for the government to just help them get by. Tell me about it. I'm seeing hardship at every damn stop of my speaking tours. 
And so, Smedley Butler's speeches take on strong undertones of class conflict. While decorating veterans with Purple Hearts, he tells a Memorial Day crowd in Passaic, New Jersey, This isn't just a two-cent medal. Even J.P. Morgan can't buy one. Finally, help comes. After taking office, Roosevelt enacts emergency financial reforms. Yeah, that's great, but what's all this financial balderdash have to do with me? I got nothing to do with those fat cat bankers. Well, that may seem like the case, Major General, but one day in July 1933, yeah. you're sitting in your favorite easy chair. I am. Just reading the early edition of the paper. Okay. And... Uh, Butler residence, Major General Smedley Darlington Butler speaking. When you answer, it's a man who says he's from the American Legion. He says someone's on their way up from a nearby Legion Hall. They'll be there soon, and they're requesting an audience. And then... Who is it? There's a knock on the door. Yeah, I heard. And for you, Major General Smedley Butler, nothing will ever be the same. Why? Is it something bad? Uh, sorry, Smedley. No spoilers. It'll have to wait till the next episode. Ah, dry up! Next time on Let's Start a Coup. Who is Smedley Butler, really? You're so smart, you tell me. Tune in as we explore the seamy underside of Smedley's career, warts and all, to ask, why did so many evil people genuinely think of him as their kind of hero? Join us to find out. Let's Start a Coup is a production of School of Humans and iHeart Podcasts. Our hosts are Alex French and Ben Bolin. The show is written by Alex French with additional writing by Joe Kinosian. Original music and scoring by Joe Kinosian. Character voices by Joe Kinosian. Sounds like someone didn't get enough attention in their childhood. Evelis Perez is our producer. Emilia Brock is our senior producer. Sound design, additional scoring, mixing and mastering by Alexander Overington. Our story editor is Lacey Roberts. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Sean Riggins is our recording engineer. Recorded at Tunewelders in Atlanta, Georgia. Executive producers are Jason English, Virginia Prescott, Brandon Barr, and Elsie Crowley. Special thanks to Ethan Trex and Adam Overett. Sound licensed from Critical Past and the Museum and University of South Carolina Moving Image Research Collection. Additional clips courtesy of the National Archives and Records Administration. If you're enjoying the show, help us get the word out by leaving a rating in your favorite podcast app. And if you're not, buzz off. Tune in again next time for Let's Start a Coup. School of Humans. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Spentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club. We went from normal life, healthy child to acute lymphoblastic leukemia or B-cell, ALL. The St. Jude team came up to get CJ via ambulance. Shortly after that, I noticed a rainbow. It meant that there was hope. We were driving into hope. 
To have hope is to have your child healthy, and we have that because of St. Jude. You can help kids fight childhood cancer. Please become a St. Jude Partner in Hope today by visiting musicgives.org. Are the old world picturesque shores of Europe calling you? Set sail on an adventure with Avalon Waterways. Enjoy an elevated cruising experience. Avalon Waterways offers smaller ships, bigger experiences with fewer people and more of, well, everything good about river cruising. Don't just dream about quaint towns and cobblestone villages. See them for yourself and make lasting memories. Discover limited time offers today at avalonwaterways.com.